Lori Ten Boom was 50 years old, unmarried Dutch woman who lived a somewhat sheltered, uneventful life when Hitler's war machine systematically eliminated Jews from German-occupied territory. And because she and her family resisted the evil Nazi rampage by aiding Jews who were hiding to escape extermination, they themselves were arrested and sent to the death camps. Now, Corey's personal vivid account of heavenly grace in the midst of that earthly hell is one that has been a source of rich blessing for, for many believers and unbelievers alike for several generations. In her acclaimed book, The Hiding Place, which was later made into an award-winning film, Corey described her life in one death camp after another as the Germans reacted to the Allies' advance across Europe and by retreating within their own borders, dragging their helpless victims with them. The last Nazi concentration camp she lived in was Ravensbrück, where 96,000 women were slaughtered, including her own sister, Betsy. When Corey and Betsy first entered Ravensbrück, they were starving and Betsy was seriously ill. And there were two women of 1,400 who were packed into a barracks built for 400. Their daily ration of food consisted of one slice of black bread in the morning and a gruel made of turnips late in the afternoon. Well, Corey had managed to smuggle in a bottle of liquid multivitamins that she dispensed drop by drop, day by day, on the black bread she and Betsy ate. Knowing that they were not being fed enough to sustain life, Corey wanted to hoard the drops But so many other women in their lice and flea-infested dormitory were weak and ill that Corey began placing a drop of the liquid vitamins on the bread slices of the women nearest them. The number of women begging for the drops of mercy soon grew from 15 to 20 to 25 and more every single morning. It scarcely seemed possible because the bottle was so small, but it continued to produce as many drops as she needed. Corey was amazed. She held it up to the light to see how much liquid remained in it, but the dark brown color of the bottle made it impossible to see through. And regardless of how many doses she dispensed, no matter how many times she tilted the little bottle and withdrew the dropper, there always was one droplet of the precious liquid on the tip. It was a miracle. In the middle of a living nightmare, Corey experienced the ample provision of God who had seen the practical need of the women and met it one drop at a time. It was a miracle. Their desperate need was satisfied by the divine act of God. But speaking of miracles, I read this week that Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones recently had heart surgery which one doctor described as a miracle procedure with a quick recovery time. And last week, Mick made a statement on his Twitter account and said this. He said, I'm so sorry to all of our fans in America and Canada with tickets. I really hate letting you down like this because they were just about to start a new tour. I'm devastated for having to postpone the tour, but I will be working very hard to be back on stage as soon as I can. Once again, huge apologies to everyone. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you seen a picture or a video clip of Mick Jagger lately? 
It's pretty clear to me from the lines on Jagger's face, the empty caverns in his eyes, and the repetitive lament of his failing voice that he still can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> what about you? I remember back in 2006 watching the Stones' halftime concert at the Super Bowl. It was a miracle to me even then that any of them could walk on and off the stage under their own power. It's kind of sad, really, when you think about it. Even today, seeing the crowds of people pressing in on the stage and clamoring for a closer look at their aging, off-key, totally used-up heroes, it reminds me of the human heart's desperate hunger for something that satisfies beyond the temporal. Something that will assuage our thirst and meet the deepest hunger of our souls. Over the years, I've preached multiple sermons in a short series from the book of Ecclesiastes. But in that book, Solomon identified this search for the soul's fulfillment as vanity. Vanity, in fact, was Solomon's word of choice. It refers to something that's short-lived, something that's fleeting, something like a vapor of smoke, like a breath. Whatever disappears quickly and fails to satisfy is, according to Solomon, vanity. Chinese food's vanity. It appears, you eat it, it tastes good, and then 10 minutes later, you're hungry again. Solomon says that his search for meaning in this earthly life, although incredibly filled with every earthly pleasure the mind can imagine, left him totally empty. He still wasn't satisfied. And no matter how hard he tried, he couldn't find lasting satisfaction. He didn't have it when he started. He couldn't find it as he searched. He didn't have it in the end. Solomon's journey reminds me of a contemporary parable which I once shared called the parable of contentment. See if you can relate to this parable if you haven't heard it already. Once there was a young girl whose parents took her to the shrine of the golden arches. There she saw an opportunity to buy a combination of food and a little toy that someone in a fit of marketing genius named the Happy Meal. May I have it, please, she asked her parents. I must have it. I don't think I could live without it. No, her parents told her, the toy is a trivial little thing that just enabled the price of this package to be raised beyond what it's really worth. It's not in the budget. We can't do it. But you don't understand, she thought. And she knew that they would not just be buying fries, McNuggets, and a dinosaur stamp. They would be buying happiness. She was convinced that she had a little McVacuum at the core of her soul. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in a Happy Meal. So she explained, I want that Happy Meal more than I've ever wanted anything else. And if I get it, I will never ask for anything ever again. <laughs> ever. No more complaining. No more demanding. If you get me that Happy Meal, I'll be content for the rest of my life. Well, this seemed like a pretty good deal to her parents, so they bought it. And it worked. She grew up to be a contented, grateful, joyful woman. She lived with serenity and grace. Her life in many ways was hard. The man she married turned out to be a louse. 
And he abandoned her with three small children and no money. The kids were too a disappointment. They dropped out of school, sponged off her meager resources, and eventually left her without a trace. And when she was an old woman, Social Security gave out, and she had to live from hand to mouth. But she never complained. She had gotten the Happy Meal. She would think of it often. I remember that happy meal, she'd say to herself. What a great joy I found there. And just as she had predicted, it brought lasting satisfaction. She was grateful for the rest of her life. Does life ever work this way? The author asks the question. You would think that after a while, children would catch on and they would say, you know, a happy meal just doesn't bring lasting happiness. I'm not going to get suckered in this time. But it doesn't happen. When the excitement wears off, they need a new fix. They need another Happy Meal. They keep buying them, and they keep not working. In fact, the only one Happy Meals bring happiness to is McDonald's. (laughs) Ever wonder why Ronald McDonald wears that grin all the time? (laughs) Billions of Happy Meals sold. That's why. Of course, only a child would be so naive... Only a child could be foolish enough to believe that a change in circumstance could bring lasting contentment. Or maybe not. Maybe when you get older, you don't necessarily get any smarter. Your Happy Meals just get more expensive. They do, don't they? They got plenty expensive for Solomon. So expensive that he wanted to remind people that it took him his whole life to figure that one out. If you read the last chapter of the book in one of the most poetic pieces of literature on aging ever written, Solomon warns us to acknowledge God our creator while we're young so as to, quote, not waste our lives and end up in his shoes. Friends, the Happy Meal parable may have been humorous, but it's not just children that hunger for the temporal. It's not just Mick Jagger that sings that he's not satisfied. We do too. Throughout his ministry, Jesus pointed people to a different perspective. He says, if you want contentment, if you want soul satisfaction, it must be sought in him in the real kingdom. C.S. Lewis once said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. You aim at earth and you will get neither. Solomon couldn't see anything past the sun. That's why he wrote about life under the sun, S-U-N. He was short-sighted, earthly-minded, and eventually became hard-hearted and fickle faith. Jesus said, for what shall it profit a man if you would gain the whole world and lose your own soul? Of what value is life without God in the picture? Well, hundreds of years before the Gospels were written, before Jesus came on the scene, the prophet Isaiah gave this profound invitation. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not Satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I like the end of verse 2. 
which says, eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. The King James Version says it this way, let your soul delight itself in fatness. Make no mistake, folks, this is no low-fat, low-sodium soybean substitute that he's talking about here. The truth of the matter is what Isaiah wants us to grasp and get a hold of is that God is our true bread. Jesus was sent from heaven to be our bread of life. Living under the sun, S-O-N, is our only hope for the complete satisfaction of our human soul. So, writes John Ortberg, God watches in amazement as people wear themselves out pursuing achievements or status or acquisitions which cannot assuage our souls. Why do you spend money, Isaiah asks, for that which is not bread? Why do you wear yourself out in work seeking promotions and achievements? Why do you devote your hours of your night to endless channel surfing in search of a program about life that can make you laugh or fear or simply feel instead of choosing to live? Why do you drive yourself into debt seeking to acquire that which money cannot buy? Of course, achievement and possessions and entertainment are not bad things. They can be very good gifts, but they make very bad gods. They are not enough to build a life on. They can nurture the human spirit but they're not bread. They're not bread. And so this morning, what we're going to look at is a text that teaches us this, what bread is to life, Jesus is to our soul. What bread is to life, Jesus is to our soul. John chapter 6. This is where we're going. Let me read a few verses out of John chapter 6 to you, beginning in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Verse 47, truly I say to you, he who believes is eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give For the life of the world is my flesh. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died. In verse 51, he who eats this bread will live forever. John chapter 6 is basically the feeding of the 5,000. And that's why I began with the Corey Ten Boom story because as those drops, the miracle of the drops continued to feed and to nourish the people at Ravensbrook, it was basically almost a duplicate of what we're reading in John chapter 6 when Jesus divided the bread and the fish and fed the 5,000. Now it doesn't take an astronomical IQ to figure out what Jesus is saying in John chapter 6. But it does take a huge dose of humility to accept it. The Apostle John unveils his first dramatic I am statement of Jesus for the same reason that Isaiah issued his Old Testament invitation that we just read in Isaiah 55. John's deepest desire was that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you and I may have life in his name because he's the true bread that came down. But how in the world did John know that here in the 21st century, life would be such a train wreck? 
How did John know that when he wrote his gospel? How could he have known? One writer asked that our lives would be so busy, that our schedule would be so crammed, that our focus would be so divided, that our bodies would be so tired. How many of you tired this morning? Don't raise your hands because I know a lot of you probably would. Our minds would be so bombarded from every angle. Our minds, our families would be so attacked from every quadrant. Our relationships would be so strained with one another and our churches would be so programmed that we would be desperate for the simplicity and the purity and the freedom and the fulfillment of life in his name. How did John know that with all the stuff that we have in the church and in our lives, that we in the 21st century would still be thirsty for living water and hungry, starving for the bread of life. I don't think he did know, but God did. Which is why he just gives us Jesus in this passage. God knows all about human nature, doesn't he? He knows that most of the time we're short-sighted, that we're simple-minded, that we're faint-hearted, that we're dissatisfied, just like the crowd to which Jesus spoke in John chapter 6. You know, it's nothing like a warm piece of fresh bread, is there? I went out to a restaurant last night with some friends and they brought their famous bread to the table before they served the meal. And, oh, that bread's good. And then they brought another wave of it. <laughs> Is there anything better than the aroma of fresh baked bread? You getting hungry? Bread is basic sustenance, isn't it? It's a staple. With bread and water, we can survive a long, long time. What do we take for granted more than our daily bread? I know a lot of you guys are on this bread-free diet. If push came to shove and you had no food, you wouldn't be worried about your figure. You'd be eating bread, my friends. We take it for granted, unless, of course, we're deprived of it, then we get hungry. Crowd in John chapter 6 was a hungry crowd and for more than just food. John indicates that after the miracle Jesus performed when he fed the 5,000, the crowd sought to take Jesus by force and make him king. That's verse 14 and 15. After Jesus withdrew, they traveled across the sea to Capernaum looking for him in verse 24. And then John actually uses the term seeking. They were seeking for Jesus. But Jesus knew what they were really after and why they really wanted to make him king. And he makes no bones about telling them about this. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, he says, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. 
Author Nancy Guthrie writes, short-sighted, that describes the crowd waiting to see Jesus, looking only to have their stomachs filled temporarily rather than their souls satisfied eternally. You see yourself in that crowd at all? Because I do. Be honest, how many of you do? How many times have you caught yourself in that place? How many times have I caught myself in that place? You know, I go to a church or a conference and I'm seeking to have my heart warmed by a thrilling worship set or a great media presentation or some articulate preaching from some greatly known preacher, which are all good things. But have I been so intent on my physical senses being satisfied that I've missed the subject of the whole thing? Jesus? The only one who can satisfy my soul? Motivated by my superficial desires, I too often miss the Savior who desires me. You find yourself in that place? The late Richard Halverson, former chaplain in the United States Senate, years ago noted that Christianity, quote, watch this now, listen to this, see if this doesn't ring true. Christianity began as a fellowship around the person of Jesus Christ, went to Greece and became a philosophy, went to Rome and became an institution, went to Europe and became a culture, came to America and became an enterprise. Indeed it has. But that's nothing new, is it? An enterprise is exactly what the crowd was making Jesus out to be here in John chapter 6. Jesus was showing this crowd, however, that he was much more than a bread machine. And that what they really needed was beyond physical food to sustain their earthly existence. He was pushing them to recognize that they needed a provision for eternity for what their soul really hungered for, and that he was that provision. As Messiah, he was more than just the provider for their hungry stomachs. He was the sustenance of their hungry souls. Even he testified that man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When did he testify to that? when he was starving after 40 days of fasting in the desert and Satan came and tempted him. His words, his teaching, and the sacrifice that he was going to make for them was everything that they needed and we need for eternal life. You and I need to come to that as well. So there's a couple of things I want to pull out of this text. Number one is this, is that receiving Jesus as the bread of life it's not for the spiritually short-sighted. It's not for the spiritually short-sighted. So let me ask you, how's your spiritual vision this morning? Check yourself against this crowd. Those who are spiritually short-sighted, first of all, settle for the temporal at the expense of the eternal. Look at verses 26 through 29 here in John 6. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore, they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him 
whom he has sent. Now they were willing to settle, simply settle for this provision of literal bread when in truth he was offering himself to them as the bread of heaven. And they just didn't get it. They didn't get it because they were spiritually not looking for it. Jesus said, don't work for the things that are temporal. Jesus warned the full stomach, the material comfort, the exalted status and reputation. Don't expend all your energies on things that perish. Work for the things that last, which I myself, the Son of Man, will give to you. And they were all still thinking in the physical realm. They wanted to know what they could do. Look what it says. What shall we do in verse 28 so that we may work the works of God. And people today, they still think that they can do things to satisfy their quest for spiritual satisfaction and ultimate salvation, don't they? But Jesus said there's only one thing to do. What's he say? Verse 29. Believe. Believe. Believe in the one whom God sent to be the satisfaction of your hungry soul. Believe in me. Believe in Jesus is what he's saying. But they were spiritually short-sighted people, people who not only settle for the temporal at the expense of the eternal, but spiritually short-sighted people also clamor for the material at the expense of the spiritual. Look at verse 30 and down to 34. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Again, they wanted tangible proof, right? Notice their humanistic reasoning in verse 30. What then do you do for a sign? Prove it to us. First, we want to see what you can do, and then we'll believe. Moses fed the Israelites for 40 years. Can you top that? Yet they had just seen him miraculously feed almost 20,000 people, men, women, and children. But that wasn't enough. They needed more. They wanted a bigger miracle, a better miracle. Bigger and better, right? Seeing is believing, after all. Isn't that what people say? Isn't that what you and I demand at times? That was Thomas's challenge in John chapter 20, verse 25, wasn't it? Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my hands there, right, then I'll believe. Well, that was the request of the thieves that were crucified next to Christ on the cross in Mark chapter 15 when they said, if you're the son of God, well, just get down off that cross. Prove it. And by the way, take us with you. Can't you see yourself in that crowd making deals with God? Oh, God, if you will just heal my son. Oh, God, if you will just give me that promotion. Oh, God, if you will just take this pain away. You 
promise to believe in him if he will come through for us. But God's divine order has always been the exact opposite of that. God's divine order is believe, then you'll see. In John 11, verse 40, he said to Martha at Lazarus's tomb, right? Didn't I tell you? Verse 40, John chapter 11, Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? John chapter 20, verse 29, again, to Thomas at his resurrection appearance, Jesus said to Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed, Thomas? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. You see, spiritually short-sighted people, because they are so focused on the material, they often miss, even complain about what God is trying to do in them spiritually. The Jews had a long history of that kind of thing, and it's brought out in this very text, right in verse 31. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. It's written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So their first encounter with manna came when they ran out of food in the desert in Exodus chapter 16. God's providence came as the result of their complaint. You can read it in Exodus 16. But it wasn't Moses that provided the manna, was it? Who provided it? God did. He provided the sustenance they needed until they reached their promised destination. And just as he provided them their earthly sustenance for physical life, he has provided the true bread from heaven for our spiritual sustenance. Enough for the entire world. That's what it says in verses 32 down to 34. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven, verse 33 says, and gives life to who? To the world. But you know the story. Back in Exodus 16, it wasn't very long after the manna came, the people of God were grumbling all about that manna, right? They got sick of it. They lost their taste for it. They still had a taste for the things of Egypt, didn't they? And they wanted to go back there. And they never got it out of their system. And the non-believers among them in the Old Testament, they were called the mixed multitude who was among them, stirred them up even more and led the Israelites to complain even more. Friends, let me say this. Jesus is the bread of life, but he will never, ever satisfy you or me if our taste is for this world. Because you and I need a changed appetite. A few years ago, there was an interview with somebody who had written a very popular book at the time. And it's like overnight, he became an instant celebrity. And he was doing all these interviews. And um, in this particular interview, somebody asked him and said, how do you react to ministries that, are, that try to present Christianity as being cool or hip? This is his answer. He said, there are many problems with trying to market the gospel of Jesus, not the least of which is that in itself, it is not a cool or fashionable idea. It isn't supposed to be. It's supposed to be revolutionary. It's for people who are tired of trying to be cool, tired of trying to get the world to redeem them. 
He said, I attended the Dove Awards recently and I was brokenhearted. I saw all these beautiful Christians, wonderful people with this wonderful revolutionary message of Jesus who instead of saying, look, fashion doesn't matter, hip doesn't matter, we're saying, world, please accept us. We can be just as hip as you are, just as fashionable as you are, only in a religious way. Then he said, I would say we need to choose our God. We need to choose our Redeemer. But Jesus basically says to this short-sighted crowd here, he says, the choice is yours, really. You can go on living the way you've been living, or you can have eternal life. Choice is yours. And that's precisely the choice God gives to you and to me today, isn't it? What bread is to your life, Jesus is to your soul. Psalm 107, verse 9 says, For he has satisfied the thirsty soul, and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. But you know, spiritually short-sighted people who settle for the temporal at the expense of the eternal, who clamor for the material at the expense of the spiritual, end up dissatisfied and unfulfilled. They choose the tangible and miss the incredible. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Seeing doesn't always lead to believing, does it? They saw Jesus. They saw the miracles. They saw all that he was doing. They heard all his words and yet they still did not believe. Bottom line is receiving Jesus as the bread of life is not for the spiritually short-sighted. That's number one. Number two is receiving Jesus as the bread of life is not for the spiritually simple-minded or earthly focused. Verse 41. This crowd showed that they were not just spiritually short-sighted. They were completely earthly-minded as well. Verse 41 says, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him since he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? They just couldn't get there, wrap their minds around the fact that this was their Messiah. That he was more than just the son of Joseph. That he was the son of God sent from heaven. Look at verse 43. Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. I'll say that again. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Again, this incredible contrast Jesus makes here presents this simple-minded, earthly-focused crowd with a no-brainer choice. He says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. And guess what? They died, didn't they? Their graves are scattered all over the desert. 
because they didn't believe. But here I am, the living bread that came down out of heaven. If you eat this bread, you will live forever. What's it going to be? And to be honest with you, he did not make the choice easy for them. Like we often do for people. He did not make the choice easy, did he? The words with Jesus then spoke invited such controversy, generated such shock, and painted such a graphic and abhorrent picture to any Jew within earshot of them were enough in and of themselves to get Jesus crucified. And the thing is, he uttered them not in the countryside, not on a mountain, not near a lake. You know where he spoke those controversial words? In church. Look at what it says. Verse 52. The Jews began to argue with one another saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said, where? In the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So receiving Jesus as the bread of life is not for the spiritually faint-hearted either. When Jesus refers to eating his flesh and drinking his blood, what's he saying here? He's simply speaking metaphorically about receiving him by faith and personally appropriating the sacrifice that he made at the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Just as eating and drinking are necessary for physical life, writes John MacArthur, so also is belief in his sacrificial death on the cross necessary for eternal life. Jesus is no more referring to physically eating his flesh and blood here than he is personally claiming to be a loaf of bread. Right? You wouldn't think those words are literal, would you? When Jesus says, I am the bread. He's not saying I'm a loaf of bread. Kind of pulls the life right out of that statement, doesn't it? To, to even think about it that way. Well, it's the same thing here. It's the spirit who gives life. Jesus said in verse 63, and you can read it there, it is the spirit who gives life and the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. He says, they're not literal, they're, not, they're spiritual, and they're critical to your understanding. These were difficult, difficult words that Jesus spoke, extremely difficult, and they still are. They still are. And as a result, many of his followers in John 6 left him. They couldn't handle the difficulty of what he was saying. They couldn't see past the words any more than they could see past the miracle of the loaves and the fish. They were spiritually short-sighted and they were spiritually faint-hearted. 
They were too short-sighted to choose life everlasting over their next meal. They were too simple-minded to think that deeply about the call of God on their lives. And they were too faint-hearted and hard-hearted to simply believe. You know, my father-in-law who led me to Christ, he used to say to me over and over and over again, Russ, the word divides. That was his simple mantra. Russ, the word divides. Don't ever forget that. The word divides. It always does and it always has and it always will. And it did here. Verse 66, chapter 6. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And so Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Peter had the right answer. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Right answer, Peter. Correct answer. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ is what this entire passage is all about. It's all about faith. It's all about believing. Look at verse 29. I'll just rehearse it for you again. Verse 29, Jesus said, answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and what? Believes in him will have eternal life and I will raise him up. I myself will raise him up on the last day. And then verse 47 Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. In other words, what bread is to your life, Jesus is to your soul. The old radio preacher Woodrow Crowell once pointed out, it's only when you are hungry that you need or want bread, isn't it? Not when you're already full of other things. An empty stomach craves bread. A full stomach loathes it. It's when we hunger for real forgiveness and salvation, not just for religion or some sensual satisfaction, that we most appreciate the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. You know why? Because bread is for hungry people. Jesus is for hungry souls. Let me close with this. Very good insight from another author, Max Lucado, actually. He says, travel to most any country and sit in any restaurant and they'll serve you bread. Bread's a staple. If the poor have nothing, they have bread. If the rich have everything, they still have bread. 
Bread is not a regional food or a national dish. You ever notice that? No country claims to be the exclusive source of bread. It may be in the form of a tortilla in Mexico or a bagel in New York. But bread is available everywhere. So is Christ. He's not bound by boundaries. No country claims him. No region owns him. No nation monopolizes him. He is everywhere at the same time, universally available. Bread is eaten daily. Some fruits are only available only in season. Some drinks are made only at holidays. Not so with bread and not so with Jesus. He should be brought to our table every single day. We let him nourish our hearts, not just in certain months, not just on special occasions, but daily. Bread is served in many forms. It's toasted, jellied, buttered, flattened, and grilled. It can be a sandwich, sweet roll, hot dog bun, croissant, dinner roll. You're getting hungry now, aren't you? Bread can meet many, many needs. So can Jesus. He adapts himself to meet our needs. He has a word for the lonely as well as for the popular. He has help for the physically ill and the emotionally ill. If your vision is clear, he can help you. If your vision is cloudy, he can help you. Jesus can meet each and every need. Can you see why Jesus called himself the bread of life? He says, I can think of one other similarity. Consider how bread is made. Think about the process of it. And Jesus experienced every part of the process of making bread. The growing, the grinding, the pounding, the firing. And just as each is necessary for bread, each was also necessary for Christ to become the bread of life. The Christ must suffer these things before he enters into his glory, he said to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. The next part of the process is the distribution of bread. And you know what? Christ leaves that with you and me. We are the distributors. We can't force people to eat the bread but we can make sure they have it. I don't know what's more incredible, he says, that God packages the bread of life in the wrapper of a country carpenter or that he gives us the keys to the delivery truck. Both moves are pretty risky. The carpenter did his part, however. And who knows, maybe we'll just learn to do ours. Let's just pray to that end, shall we? Lord Jesus, help us to realize that you are the true bread of life. Whenever pangs of hunger grab at our soul, help us to see that the bread in other windows, no matter how seductive to the eye or sweet to the taste, is not what we should be eating. Train my spiritual palate to long for you, Lord. And teach me that you are my daily bread and all the bread that I will ever need. 
Lord Jesus, we have friends and relatives who have never tasted such bread. You know each of their names, and we think of them right now by name. They have sampled from life's smorgasbord, tasted from all that life has to offer. But they are starved for something more, starved for love, for acceptance, for forgiveness, for meaning and purpose. Help each one of us, myself included, to lead them to you, Jesus. Prepare their hearts and prepare ours. Give us an extra measure of humility so that we might be, as someone once said, merely one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. This I ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.